Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-centered leader in confessional broadcasting. Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. the show where we seek to be of one mind that is the mind of christ and we continue to make our way through the apology of the augsburg confession here we talked last week about yeah it seems somewhat tedious at times but this is good stuff this is where this is where the rubber really hits the road when it comes to the article of justification that that chief article of our christian faith what christ has done for us and this is how he delivers it to us uh namely through the mass the lord's supper and so we continue to keep talking about this important thing uh that we have the living of our christian faith what jesus has done and delivered to us and to do that we continue to have our excellent cohort of christ confessing concordians layman peter slayton pastor peter ill and i am your host pastor sean smith and uh i'm gonna throw it to pastor peter ill to go ahead and give us the call-in numbers because i never get that information right sure we have the privilege <laughs> of getting to be a call-in show again today you can reach us at 314 314- uh, I'm sorry, at 1-800-730-2727, 1-800-730-2727, or you can send us an email at kfuo at kfuo.org, or you can reach us on social media like Facebook and Twitter and Instagram at KFUO Radio. Excellent. Thank you for sharing that information. And we are just going to kind of jump right back into it here because there is a lot of good uh, material to cover. And there, there's something especially, uh, it's a good good Latin word that we, we hopefully will make it to today. So I just want to jump back in. Uh, we are in the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, as I said, Article 24 of the Mass. And we have made it through Paragraph 74, so we're picking up with Paragraph 75. And uh, we are using the Concordia, the Lutheran Confessions Reader's Edition, available through CPH. But we recognize that much like scriptures, uh, there's there's a lot of different uh, versions and translations of the Book of Concord out there. So that's why we use uh, the article and paragraph numbers, because that usually is pretty standard. It's kind of like chapters and verses in your Bible. So if that helps you follow along, if you're able to read there at home, that that is where we are picking up. So again, Article 24 of the Mass paragraph 75 and the apology of the augsburg confession i'm just going to go ahead and read here the fathers certainly speak of a twofold effect the comfort of consciences and thanksgiving or praise the former of these effects has to do with the nature of the sacrament the latter has to do with the sacrifice ambrose that's a church father says about comfort go to him and be absolved because he is the forgiveness of sins do you ask who he is Hear him when he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Cited there, John six thirty, John chapter 6, verse 35. This passage declares that the forgiveness of sins is offered in the sacrament. It also declares that this should be received through faith. Countless references with this meaning are found in the fathers, that is, the church fathers, all of which the adversaries pervert to the outward act, opus operatum, and to work and to a work applied to others. Yet the fathers clearly require faith and speak of the comfort belonging to everyone, and not of the application. 
Besides these, expressions are also found about Thanksgiving. One beautiful expression by Cyprian, also a church father, is about those communing in a godly way. Piety and thanking the bestower of such abundant blessing makes a distinction between what has been given and what has been forgiven. This means piety regards both what has been given and what has been forgiven. That is, it compares the greatness of God's blessings and the greatness of our evils, sin, and death with each other and gives thanks and so on. In this way, the term Eucharist arose in the church. Certainly the ceremony itself, the giving of thanks by the outward act ex opere operato, does not apply to others. It does not merit the forgiveness of sins for others and free souls of the dead. These opinions conflict with the righteousness of faith. Without faith, the ceremony cannot benefit either the one performing it or others. I said there's a, a great Latin phrase coming up here, a word coming up here. There's a lot of Latin words in there, actually. Uh, Eucharist uh, came in there, opus operatum. Uh, lots of good uh, Latin in there, ex opere operato, which is uh, uh, Pastor Ill's uh, favorite uh, phrase to define there. And uh, so <laughs> we'll, we'll just go ahead and lot. give it to you guys. But it's not yeah. the Latin word I was talking about yet. I, I just want to throw that out. There's a better one coming. But go ahead and jump in there. Give, it, give us an idea. What are we talking about here? Break it down. Go ahead. We have a chance here to talk about how in the Lord's Supper, in the Mass, we have both a gift and the opportunity to respond by praying, praising, and giving thanks. And so this isn't just a one-way event, uh, but that's what the uh, the opponents of the confessors were, were arguing that you Lutherans are saying that this is just about receiving gifts from God. Really, it's about offering something to God. And the answer here is, no, no, no. This is a, a conversation. Our Lord Jesus Christ comes to us under bread and wine with his body and blood. And when he does, he gives us the forgiveness of sins. And when we receive that forgiveness of sins, when we receive the grace of God, we give back to him thanksgiving and praise. Not that it does anything or accomplishes anything for us, but because that's what God's people do. They simply respond with thanksgiving and praise for what God has done for them. Well, and I think it's good to contrast that thanksgiving and praise as Melanchthon does here with the evil, our sins, the, excuse me, our evils, sin and death. It's that recognition of why are we giving thanks? Because we recognize this is what I have actually been forgiven of, delivered from. Um, and so it, it's all hand in hand where, you know, with the adversaries, it gets very, very confused as to what's actually going on. Why are we actually doing this? Because you lose sight of the forgiveness. You lose sight of the comfort, which means you also lose sight of the sin that you're being comforted from or forgiven of. I'm, I'm having a hard time with prepositions today. That's okay. <laughs> we still like you. Oh, wow. Thanks. <laughs> there, there's a bit of the nature of the Lord's Supper at work even there, right? You know, it, it's not about Indeed. how we offer the sacrifice. It's just pure grace given to you uh, that we like you anyway. Okay, that, that's maybe too much of a stretch <laughs> to uh, compare it to the Lord's Supper, which is clearly far superior. And we're bringing but, too uh, many inside jokes onto the show that nobody understands now, too. So that's always fun. Yeah. Okay. Mine's All really right. More of a uh, 
But uh, I, I do want to make the point here, though, that this does tie in with a lot of the things that we've talked about for several weeks now as we've gone through this article. Of This does tie in with the nature of uh, sacrifice, how our uh, uh, the the writers of the the roman catholic theology the the confutation as they presented it uh and and their theologians are presenting this idea of sacrifice and and pastor l i think you said it well it, it's that work that that they do that they offer and that's kind of our main issue with this no the mass is ultimately what christ has done and delivers to you and then the eucharist the thanksgiving uh which is what that latin word means is just simply our response back of all that we've been given and it doesn't accomplish anything, you know, in our praise and Thanksgiving back. It's just simply, um, you know, what, uh, what will naturally flow forth from, from a joyful heart that receives such grace. Well, and even in the use of that Greek word Eucharist, we hear not just that we give thanks and praise, but we are basing our thanks and praise off of Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, gave thanks. He Eucharisted uh, that's what the Greek word in, in the text is. And when he gave thanks for the gift of the meal, he has also given us a pattern. He gives the meal and we give thanks. And so we continue on that pattern of receiving the meal from Jesus and of giving thanks for it. And you are correct there, by the way. That is, of course, a Greek word, and I keep calling it Latin. But, uh, well, it's one of those things that the Latin, as we do in English, it just steals it from the Greek, and so they use it in the Latin, too. But yeah, It's uh, all Greek anyway, to me, Yes, thank you for the correction. All right. Anything else on this section, or else we're going to push forward to this section on the term of the Mass, which has some excellent stuff. I'm looking forward to linguistics, because I like linguistics. I have a, re a real quick thing, because sometimes when we, re we read the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, we think that this is ancient church history. But this is still something that from time to time comes up even uh, among us as Lutheran Christians today. When sometimes people will say, if the pastor does this or if the pastor does that, he's trying to recreate the sacrifice of the, of the Mass or the sacrifice of the divine service. Uh, but showing that we give thanks to Jesus for what he does for us isn't a isn't a trying to get back to re-sacrificing the mass at all, but simply saying, no, we are confessing our faith, sometimes bodily, uh, sometimes physically, uh, saying, hey, Jesus is coming to us here in body and blood, in, with, and under bread and wine, and we recognize that Jesus is here, and that is a pretty big deal. And so we pay attention. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point, because especially uh, we, we do still notice this, again, as you said, even in, in Lutheran congregations, when when we recover a bit of that reverence that we should have around the celebration of the mass. I mean, because we do believe that Christ is truly present there with his body and his blood in with and under that bread and wine. And, and he comes bringing rich, precious gifts to us. If we're in the presence of God, as we believe that we are right. And we're receiving such, you know, gifts that are worthy of royalty that he bestows upon us. We should be reverent around those things. And, and, and we can't ignore, of course, the historical precedent that I, I think you, you brought out there of, you know, kind of this is what the adversaries did. The Roman Catholic theologians did when they when they were doing um, their their sacrifice, offering a sacrifice, you know, um, uh, 
there that that those movements those those actions and so forth are are somewhat associated with that we don't we don't discount that and yet we're also still trying to recover so that we can confess what it is that we believe while still making a distinction and so yeah that that is a that is a tough tension to kind of hold there uh, but as i often say the christian life is one lived out in tension and so we simply hold the tension but i think that's an excellent point to to accent there all right, let's go ahead and get into some linguistics for uh, <laughs> layman Slayton there. All right. All right. Uh, so we're picking up Apology of the Augsburg Confession, Article 24 of the Mass, Paragraph 78, and this is subtitled The Term Mass. The adversaries also refer us to linguistics. They get arguments from the names of the Mass, which do not require a long discission, Except as often as Melanchthon's case, he's going to give us a long discussion. We're anyway, get one that's anyways. an aside. Yay. All right. For even though the mass is called a sacrifice, it does not make it. Yeah, it does not make sense that it must give grace by the outward act, ex opere operato, or when applied to others, merits the forgiveness of sins for them. Liturgia, they say, means a sacrifice, and the Greeks call the mass liturgy. Why do they leave out here the old name synaxis? which shows that the Mass used to be the communion of many. Let us discuss the word liturgy. This word does not properly mean a sacrifice, but rather the public ministry. Liturgy agrees well with our belief that one minister who consecrates gives the, the Lord's body and blood to the rest of the people, just as one minister who preaches offers the gospel to the people. As Paul says, this is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God, citing 1 Corinthians 4.1. That is, of the gospel and the sacraments. And we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God, 2 Corinthians 5.20. So the term liturgia agrees well with the ministry. For it is an old word, ordinarily used in public civil administrations, to the Greeks, it meant public burdens, such as tribute, the expense of equipping a fleet, or similar things. For Leptines, the oration of Demosthenes speaks about such things, discussing at length public duties and exemptions. He will say that some unworthy men, having found an exemption, have withdrawn from public burdens. So they spoke in time of the Romans as the reply of Pernaxus. On the law of exemption shows, even though the number of children does not liberate parents from all public burdens, and the commentary of Demonstus states that later Gia is a kind of tribute, the expense of the games, the expense of equipping vessels, of attending to the gymnasia and similar public offices. In Second Corinthians 9.12, Paul uses it for a collection. Taking a collection not only supplies those things that the saints lack, but also causes them to give more thanks abundantly to God. Philippians 2.25, he calls Epaphroditus a minister to my need where certainly a sacrificer cannot be understood. Further references are not needed since examples are understandable for those reading the Greek writers, in whom liturgia is used for public civil burdens or ministries. Because of the pair of vowels, grammarians do not get this term from light, which means prayers, but from public goods, which they call leta, so that leturgeo means I pay attention to or I administer public goods. All right, that, that's just kind of like a lot of history and information in there. Layman Slayton, go ahead and jump in. <laughs> okay, so the short version of what's happening here is they are trying to define their terms, and they're they're pointing out something that I think is is a persistent problem 
uh, for humans in general. And, and it, is, it is this. I think we talked about it last week. We tend to take a word and say, well, this is what that word means to me right now. Therefore, that's also what it means in that context, in that writing, in that location. And so what what they're doing, it's like they're the adversaries are kind of doing a little bit of sleight of hand where they're assuming the meaning based on their current understanding of it or assuming the meaning based on the convenient understanding of it rather than the understanding in that context at that time of how that word is used. It's It's like if I were to say that I went uh, over the weekend and had a gay old time at the nightclub. Nobody's going to actually think that I had a that I was happy. You're actually going to think something very different and something very wrong. Also, I don't go to nightclubs. So that's probably a bad example too, but <laughs> but I mean if if you need an example of how we do this, you can't use that word now and think that it's going to mean the same thing that when you read it in a book like I'm currently reading a Tolkien book, and that word is used very, very differently because it's written in the 40s. And I can't then say, oh, well, that's what that, it means the same thing there as it means now, and I'm going to read that meaning back into how Tolkien was using it, or as we often do in scripture. And here we have a move, not just with history, but with context, too, where the the confessors, Melanchthon here, goes back and cites Hey, this is how, outside of Scripture, the word liturgia gets used as public burden or public service, uh, and most most frequently, the word liturgia was used for paying your taxes. And so, uh, by sharing that common burden, you would do things for others, but it doesn't only mean pay your taxes either. And I think that there comes a point where the opponents are trying to overly nuance the word and the word liturgia or the word that we know as liturgy. And they're trying to say, no, it refers to the sacrifice of praise that people give to God. And by removing it from its historical context, when it was written in the gospels and the epistles, by removing it from the context of the first hearers and readers of the biblical texts, they end up writing their own thoughts back into the text that really aren't authentic and true. Right. And, and, and we've talked about this before too, of how um, th- this is our whole concept of the mass is, is why we call what we do in Lutheran congregations, divine service, God's service to us, because Liturgia, uh, where we get the word liturgy, as you talked about, is this service, well, really, uh, and I'm stealing this from Arthur Just, uh, uh, what's his book, uh, Pastoral De- can't, Heaven on Earth, that's it, sorry, just came to my mind, uh, <laughs> Heaven on Earth, he talks about this in the nature of uh, where we get the word liturgia, and he's, and he's referencing here the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, where we have confessed this as Lutheran since the beginning there, and uh, it's, you know, it, it can even be understood as service to the empire, service to the Roman empire there right and so yeah you're paying your taxes or or the the example that dr. just gives is that uh, you know you might have a section of road out in front of your house and you would be responsible for taking care of that section of road that was your service to the empire right and so uh, the the early Christians took this word 
and 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 ascribed it to what God does for us in the mass, uh, but it's His service to us. And and Lutherans always confess this. And uh, one of the theologians that we've talked about on this show before, Francis Pieper, and his and his uh, uh, section on Christian dogmatics or his works, Christian dogmatics, um, has something really quite excellent where he cites this section of the Apology. And so I kind of want to read this section. Not kind of. I'm going to read this <laughs> section um, just because I, I think it helps us frame our mind around this really quite well, and it it explains what's going on here really well, too. He says this, The Lord's Supper is no more and no less than a means ordained by Christ to offer and impart to all who partake of this meal the forgiveness of sins which Christ secured for men. In other words, the Lord's Supper is not law but pure gospel. It is not work that we do for Christ, but a work that Christ does to us. It is a work through which he assures us that by his reconciling death we have obtained a gracious God. This is clearly the sense of the words Christ used at the institution of his supper when he says, take, eat, this is my body, which is given for you, and this is my blood, which is shed for you. These words can have no other meaning than that we ourselves no longer have to pay for our sins, but that our sins have already been expiated by Christ's body given for us and his blood shed for us. Hence, Luther is right when he insists the Mass, the Lord's Supper, is no work or sacrifice of men, but a word and rite of divine grace, which God uses to establish and strengthen our faith in him, namely that he is gracious to us. And this that, that's a beautiful summary of exactly what we've been talking about for multiple weeks on this on this show is that when we understand this and and even just back to the again the terms that we use in the church from ancient times help us understand what is going on here there, there is a service going on but it's not us to God we got to get the direction right and we've spent many shows talking about that uh, in this uh, already um, it, it is God to us not us to God and he it is is that divine service and then we respond with our thanksgiving and praise. I see you shaking your head there on Skype, Pastor L. Does that mean you want to jump in? Uh, I can. It does now. Okay. It does now. <laughs> uh, right. I, I was really excited that you mentioned that we do give God our praise and our thanksgiving because so often we have this idea that it's one way or the other, but that's not the way that Scripture speaks. And, accordingly, it's not the way that the Lutheran confessions speak. Uh, just like when we started talking about the the divine service or the mass uh, several weeks ago, we started by talking about how God speaks and we hear, and then we repeat back to him what he has first said to us in scripture, using the very words of scripture to say back to God what he first said to us. And so we continue in that pattern using his word to give him thanksgiving and praise after we have received his gifts. But he, as our Heavenly Father, starts the conversation, and we respond based on what we hear from him. Well said. See, see, I just responded to the conversation that you had there with thanksgiving for what you said. We're, we're you. just full of examples. <laughs> Weak examples, but examples nonetheless. Layman At Slayton, least anything? we're talking our talk and walking our walk, right? Indeed. Yes. Yeah. We're trying anyway. Yeah, well, I, I guess the only thing I, I would add to that is to add on to what Pastor Ill said is remembering, as as Lutherans, we can sometimes go overboard in how we argue this in saying that the divine service is all about God coming to us as if that's the only thing that's happening. But what we need to be clear on is that 
yes, there is kind of a two-way thing going on here. But when we respond, it's not as if God needs what we are giving him. It's not as if whatever we give to God, this thanks that we give him, endears him to us more or curries favor with him because of the quality of the thanks that we're giving or or anything like that. So what we need to be clear on is, yeah, there is this thanks that we return to God, but it, it's not so that God then loves us even more or so that God shows us even more favor because we are properly returning thanks. No, we're simply talking about the the I keep stumbling over the word natural because I associate natural with sinful nature. So, <laughs> but it's kind of the way things work is we respond in that way. That's simply how it is. Or because of who we are in Christ. Yes. That's exactly what exactly. we do. Yep. All right. I know uh, I was just given the one minute sign, but I'm actually going to take us to break a little early. So Stephanie, go ahead and get ready to throw us out there. Uh, come on back as we will continue to take a look at and pick up with paragraph 84, article 24 of the Augsburg Confession of the Mass. Our Lord says, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. When Lutheran pioneers made their way to Ferndale, California, on the north end of what is now known as the Lost Coast, our Savior found sheep that were lost, giving us all reason to rejoice. Today, our Lord is still finding his lost sheep on the Lost Coast through the services of St. Mark's Lutheran Church in Ferndale, California. Learn more at stmarksferndale.com. I'm Free to Be Faithful moderator Kip Allen. Freedom must be exercised to be kept. And one way is the upcoming LCMS Life Conference in the nation's capital. The Reverend Robert Zagor, Executive Director of LCMS Office of National Mission, discusses the event on Free to Be Faithful Wednesday at 2.30 and again Saturday at 9.30 on Worldwide KFUO. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. The prophet Isaiah chapter 55 verses 10 and 11. Begin and conclude your day with the word that accomplishes the purposes for which it is sent. Morning prayer at 7 a.m. and evening prayer at 5 p.m. Weekdays on KFUO. Christ for you anytime, anywhere. The broadcasts of morning prayer and evening prayer are underwritten by Lutherans for Life. that once was is lost. J.R.R. Tolkien's classic fantasy books have been popularized in the Lord of the Rings film trilogy. What many don't know is that Tolkien was an editor for the English translation of the Jerusalem Bible, translating the book of Jonah. It was the first widely accepted Roman Catholic translation of the Bible since the 17th century. 
respected for its scholarly translation from the original Hebrew and Greek into French. In The Fellowship of the Ring, Tolkien writes of Gollum seeing the misty mountains for the first time. The roots of those mountains must be roots indeed, a Tolkien-esque line that is echoed in his later translation of Jonah 2, 6 and 7. The seaweed was wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. Engage with the Bible in its impact in every sphere. Brought to you by Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. And welcome back to Concord Matters as we continue to talk about the master, defining our terms, what they really mean, and how we understand what goes on in worship, that conversation of God to us and us in response to God for what he marvelously gives to us in the forgiveness of sins, the Lord's Supper. Good conversation as always, and as we have that conversation going on, it is with our excellent cohort of Christ Confessing Concordians, Layman Peter Slayton, Layman, P not Layman. <laughs> You've mm. been demoted. Promoted, uh, maybe. No, it's not a demotion. <laughs> okay. We don't want to get into the levels in the church. we had that but, conversation, uh, it, yeah. Yeah, yeah it, it, is, it is the wrong title. Nonetheless, it is Pastor Peter Hill. There's just too many... <laughs> names that are similar and uh i was just yeah it's it's rough rough day uh, second time on the radio today you'd think i'd have it figured out so anyway we have layman peter slayton pastor something. peter ill i am pastor sean smith who cannot host a show to save his neck and we're gonna give it to pastor peter ill to give us that call-in information once again Sure, you can go ahead and reach us at 1-800-730-2727, 1-800-730-2727, or you can send us an email at kfuo at kfuo.org, or look for us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and so on, at KFUO Radio. Excellent. All right. We're going to jump back in it because there is a lot of good stuff here. We were just talking before uh, on this term of the mass, and we talked about that word liturgia, what it means, how we understand it, uh, and and basically summarize this long section of which uh, Melanchthon kind of snarkily said we don't even need a long discussion on, but then it was there for several paragraphs nonetheless. Anyway, and yet because I know that layman Peter Slayton loves when Melanchthon just has these fun retorts, you know, back uh, to our adversaries. Do I get to I'm read gonna the him, section? I'm going to let you pick up the reading there with paragraph 84 of article 24 of the Mass in the Apology of the Augsburg Confession. Take that's, us away. That's great because I love this first sentence. Their argument, <laughs> starting at 84, their argument that since the Holy Scriptures mention an altar, the Mass must be a sacrifice is ridiculous. <laughs> Paul refers to the figure of an altar only by comparison. They invent the idea that the mass was named from an altar, midzbeah. I'm assuming that's a Hebrew word, and I have no idea if I did that right. Why do they need such far-fetched sources for words unless they want to show their knowledge of the Hebrew language? Why seek the sources for words from a distance when the term mass is found in Deuteronomy 16.10, where it means the collections or gifts of the people not the offering of the priest. Individuals coming to the celebration of the Passover were obliged to bring some gift as a contribution. Early Christians also kept this custom. Coming together, they brought bread, wine, and other things, as the canons of the apostles declare. From there, a portion was taken to be consecrated. The rest was given out to the poor. With this custom, they also kept Mass as the name of the contributions. 
Because of such contributions, it appears also that in other places the Mass was called agape, unless one would prefer that it was so called because of the common feast. Let us leave out these silly things. It is ridiculous that the adversaries should produce such trifling guesses about such an important matter. Although the Mass is called an offering, how does the term favor the dreams about the outward act, opus operatum, and their application, which merits the forgiveness of sins for others? Can it be called an offering because prayers, thanksgivings, and the entire worship are offered there, as it is also called a Eucharist? Neither ceremonies nor prayers benefit by the outward act, ex opere operato, without faith. We are not arguing here about prayers, but particularly about the Lord's Supper. Shall I pause or continue? Go ahead and pause there. Great. Pastor, I'll go ahead and, and, and summarize there. What, what What's going on there? We're, we're doing more defining, but what's he defining for us? The adversaries are saying in the Old Testament, this word is used for a collection or an offering. And the, uh, the uh, Melanchthon here, the confessors, say, well, right, it was an offering because the people in the Old Testament, when they got together for a sacrifice, would bring... A lot of things, some of them were used to be sacrificed to God and would be burned completely on the altar, but other pieces and other portions would be eaten together in community. And so they'd have a collection of food and drink, and they would uh, eat and drink that together as God's people. And he says, we do the same thing in the church now. It is an older custom among us, and maybe it still goes on in some places, where people will actually come with bread and wine and bring in bread and wine into church to use for the Lord's Supper, and they'll actually carry it up to the altar during the offertory. Sometimes that gets done, sometimes it doesn't. But it reminds me of an experience that I had uh, when I was traveling in India a while ago. I went to a church service, and they passed the offering plate, and... uh, I'm familiar with offering plates. That worked out just fine. But then they also passed a big stainless steel bowl. And I noticed that each uh, each mother of each house would go each into her purse and come out with a bag of rice. And she'd pour a small bag of rice into that big stainless steel bowl. And at the end of the service, I asked the pastor, what's up with the big stainless steel bowl of rice? And he said, oh, it's part of our offering. Each week, everybody brings some rice and contributes to the big bowl of rice. And then about once every eight weeks or so, it's given to some of the poorest families of the congregation. And so they have a common gathering of offering that goes along with their love for each other in the Lord's Supper as they care for each other's physical needs, along with the spiritual needs, the life, forgiveness, and salvation that comes in Jesus' body and blood. But all through this, there's an emphasis on these are the people gathering and thanking God for his gifts. Yes, but first and foremost, we recognize God's gift includes the gift of covering our sins with the blood of sacrifice. And for us today, we say the true sacrifice is the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. That's that's an excellent point made there. And, and you mentioned a practice that I, I've never actually seen myself, though I have heard of it, of, you know, an older practice, as you said, of kind of even bringing the elements of the Lord's Supper forward during the offering. Um, and, and I've even heard of where that practice is still done. Um, and, and this is when we as pastors tend to uncover the elements is during the offering as well. It's, 
probably alluding to that practice again of those things being brought forward at that time. Uh, but there's kind of the practice of someone in the congregation bringing it that Sunday and bringing it forward that time or, or some congregations still, they don't even set the altar until the offering time and kind of bring it forward. I've heard of these things going on, but even if we don't have those practices, we do still tend to have the practice, right? Of how do we pay for the things that we use in it? It's out of the offerings. And so we still kind of have that connection going on there. But again, even as you made the point of what you saw in India, and, and, and again, we even have, you know, different alms ministries or benevolence funds, you know, things like that, that are also coming out of our offerings and everything. That's all a part of that response of Thanksgiving for that main gift that God gives to us. I see Layman Slayton who really wants to jump in there. He keeps making faces at me on Skype. Go well, ahead. Well, I was also saying hi to somebody, but I did have a question because you had mentioned the the uncovering of the elements. And I had a thought. One of One of the benefits of doing this show in this way, of going through the confessions systematically like we are is the opportunities to teach some of these things that we tend to forget to teach. And so when you said that maybe the uncovering of the elements during the offering ties back to that, I've never heard that before. I've never thought about that before. And I simply thought that that part of the liturgy, that part of the service was simply a matter of convenience of, well, the pastor standing up here might as well do something like uh, I'll uncover the elements. But you seem to be suggesting, and I'm, I'm hoping if you guys can expand on this a little bit, okay, well, here's an opportunity. We're talking about the Mass. We're talking about the Eucharist. We're talking about this Thanksgiving. We're talking about the Lord's Supper. And here's an element of that ceremony with which I am completely unfamiliar, and I'm willing to bet there are others that might be too. So there's actually a reason why the pastor uncovers it then. In a couple of my big liturgy books uh, back in my study, it talks about this as being, indeed, the offering is the collection together of the elements for communion, as well as the gifts of the people of God in thanksgiving for uh, the gifts of Jesus. And we have an opportunity to do just that. Um, something that has, among us, fallen a bit out of practice, um, because in many cases it's viewed as being... Uh, really Roman Catholic, but does have some helpful teaching to it, are the ancient prayers for, as the pastor's preparing the elements of the Lord's Supper, uh, the prayers go along the lines of, Heavenly Father, even as you have taken grains of wheat and combined them into one bread, take your faithful people and combine them into one church in Christ." As you have taken multiple grapes and formed one cup of salvation, form your church into one body of Christ here in the church. And so at this time, everything that was separate, that was disparate, is brought together um, along with prayers and thanksgivings and is recognized as being part of our general offering that is thanks and prayers and alms and that goes that flows from who we are as Christians who receive Jesus' body and blood. Cool. Absolutely. I didn't know any of that. <laughs> thanks. There's a lot we all don't know, really. And, and, and I mean, it, it, it's true. Uh, this is a helpful point because even as I and Pastor Ill, we went through seminary, we spent years on this and studying this, as we continually learn and grow as people ourselves, there's there's so much the richness and depth of our theology 
and church and, and how we worship and everything is so deep that, that really you can spend a lifetime learning on it and learn something new at all times. And so it, it is good to talk about these things. Thank you for bringing it up that, that yeah, this is probably unfamiliar. And, and I do know that uh, connected with this, too, we've had this discussion it was a long, long time ago on the show because I know it was between Pastor Fisk when he was the host of the show and myself talking about, you know, even what happens when we bring the offerings forward, right, is that sometimes there is the, the common practice of what we see that the pastor will take the offering plates and lift them up to the altar as if it's some sort of sacrifice that we're offering to God. Look, this is what we're giving. And really... It's all God's anyway, right? We're gathering together those offerings, that, that, that collection of what we have received by his gracious mercy. And, and then there's also kind of the common practice, and, and I confess I do this in my dual parish uh, here in southern Illinois, uh, where uh, we place the offering plates on the altar. Um, however, the, the encouragement of all those big, thick liturgy books that Pastor Ill was talking about that we pastors have in our studies is that we not put them there. And this is the point that Pastor Fist made quite a while ago on the show was, no, we really ought not put them on the altar because it, it gets us a misunderstanding of what's going on. The altar is God's service, that divine service to us. It's his gifts coming to us. And so we have traditionally had a separate place where we place the offering plates. Now, I just kind of have space limitations in my 1800s old churches here and it's kind of tied up there and so I just have nowhere to put them except for kind of on the altar but I put them off to the side yeah, and I have also pastors put them kind of on the corner if they don't have yeah. any other option so if, you're, if your pastor puts it on the altar he's not a heretic yeah. <laughs> he it, must it's, just it's not, not have another sin. place to put it yeah. and, and, and the reality is, is that the, the only reason we talk about these things is because anything that we do anytime we do something it has an opportunity to say something about you and what you believe it, it, that's that's true of anything you know uh we're, we're going we're coming up i i think layman slayton are you even going out for the the right to life marches yeah. in dc yep heading right. out on thursday and so just by your presence there and, and walking along with the march and so forth that that practice of being there says something about what you believe you're, you're mm -hmm. confessing something whether you open your mouth or not right yep. and so this is why we want to always consider what is it that we're doing? This is why it's important for us pastors to think about these things and study these things and, and for parishioners to ask. And I, I know I've been asked many times in my pastoral ministry, well, why do you do this? You know, why, why do you do that? And, and that's a really good habit to get into. That's, that's something you can call into a radio show like this and ask about too as well. Um, but, uh, um, th this, this, this is what we're we're saying here is we want to understand once again the direction of things it's not that we don't have that response of thanksgiving of of the gathering together and those prayers are quite beautiful thanks for bringing those in pastor L. um of what it is that we're gathering together and how we care for one another in thanksgiving to what god has done for us but we don't want to do something that might lead astray our thinking as to thinking that we're offering something to god uh by our offerings by lifting up the plates and things like that again i'm not calling your pastor I, this is a very common practice that I've seen and I've even done in my, my own ministry. I'm not calling him a heretic. I'm not calling him unfaithful or that he's sinning or anything like that. Um, but it is something for us to consider so that we don't have the wrong understanding of what's going on there. And like you said, Pastor Smith, this is really a case where ceremonies are all what you make of them. And so there comes a point where you can say one thing by placing offering plates on the altar, we return to God what he has first given to us. That's not wrong, especially if you teach it in a biblical and clear way to the folks who are around you. 
there's also, though, something to be said for from the altar we receive and the gifts that we give back, we give back, well, somewhere else. Um, there's not a there's not a wrong, but it's all about how we teach it and what we say about the goodness of Jesus Christ who comes to us and who calls us to respond with thanksgiving and praise. Absolutely. And it makes the point that we made at the very beginning of this article and, and the, uh, the, the Augsburg Confession itself makes very briefly about this article as well, uh, which is that ceremonies are given to teach. And so we want to consider what is it that we're teaching uh, when we do this. And, and, and I think that that's a helpful point to make as well there that I really should have made, which is, yeah, it can actually teach something else that we also agree with and that's fine we just need to be clear what is it that we're we're communicating and what we're doing and and that we think about these things and consider these things and and that's rightly done in a community absolutely well said all right anything else on that uh that practical kind of thing there that uh that we do in the liturgy okay all right let's jump back to <laughs> we're all shaking our that, heads but you can't that was see very that, that was very radio. inaccurate yeah we, you know, this is the difficulty. I haven't been in studio with you guys in quite a long time. We, we have this you. artificial relationship via <laughs> Skype, and then I'm on the internet for doing the show, everything else. But the with, with a newborn real. at home, I'm very thankful for this opportunity. So thanks for holding down the fort there, guys, and let me join you uh, via the internet. Anyway, uh, back to our show. Uh, with uh, paragraph 88, let's go ahead and pick up there. Uh, Pastor Peter, I'll have you read. Sure. The Greek canon also says many things about the offering, but it plainly shows that it is not speaking properly of the body and blood of the Lord, but of the whole service of prayers and thanksgivings. For it says this, Make us worthy to bring to you prayers and requests and bloodless sacrifices on behalf of all people. When this is rightly understood... It is not offensive. It prays that we be made worthy to offer prayers and supplications and bloodless sacrifices for the people. He calls even prayers bloodless sacrifices. Just as, also a little afterward, we offer, he says, this reasonable and bloodless service. Those who would rather interpret this as a reasonable sacrifice and transfer it to Christ's very body do so inappropriately. The canon speaks of the entire worship, and in opposition to the outward act, opus operatum. Paul has spoken of reasonable service, logike litteria, Romans 12.1, namely, of the worship of the mind, of fear, of faith, of prayer, of thanksgiving, and so on. All right. Thanks for stopping before we get to the Mass for the Dead. That's a, that's a big section that I'm not sure. We, we might try and tackle some of it today, but... <laughs> It, it really just deserves we'll let Pastor Shear take that one. Yeah, um, but uh, yeah, go ahead and 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 talk about. Okay, so we, we've talked about this before, but this bloodless sacrifices. What's going on with that? As it's talking about bloodless sacrifice, Melanchthon and the confessors are really clear. What we're talking about is all of the prayers, all of the thanksgivings, all of the gifts that we bring in the offering that are for the use of the congregation as a whole, for the use for the poor. Everything that we're doing here, all of our answers to God are a bloodless sacrifice. This isn't something that forgives sins. This isn't something that does any kind of meriting salvation. These are simply the offerings of thanksgiving that we give back to God. 
And so we offer these bloodless sacrifices. But Melanchthon is really clear. For anybody who tries to say, oh, bloodless sacrifice, that is the sacrament of Holy Communion, the bloodless sacrifice of Jesus being given to us, Melanchthon says, no, 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 no. You're completely and totally changing the words. We, As Paul says, our prayers, our petitions, our supplications, these are our bloodless sacrifices of love for others. And so we let those be, and we recognize that Jesus himself made a bloody sacrifice for us once for all, and delivers that goodness, that life and salvation to us through the Lord's Supper. And it's kind of like what you were saying at the beginning, Pastor Ill, of this section where the adversaries are trying to overly nuance their definitions of things. And in this case, they're they're overly nuancing something that's actually intended to, to be broad and more encompassing. And so the error is taking that more broad umbrella term and trying to make it only reference a very specific, highly nuanced situation. I think we do that ourselves sometimes, too. <laughs> Indeed we do. When we're not very careful with how we're defining our terms and what we're actually talking about, it's very easy to assume Something is broad when I'm trying to talk about a narrow thing, and the opposite is true as well. Well, and it's the reason that, you know, good theology takes time and working through it. And, and we've made this point, you know, I made this point especially last week. That that's why it's, it's actually good, even though it may be somewhat bad radio, to, to, to go through all the, the detail of all of this and, and reading it and, and working our way through it and for multiple weeks on end. Uh, at the same time, this is how good theology is done. We, we really do need to understand these things because it, it does still it does still impact the church. You know, this isn't just something that, that played out at the Reformation. You know, I was thinking as we were going through this, you know, they, they would use somewhat different terminology. They certainly wouldn't be referencing kind of the theological terms that we have interspersed in that in that writing, that short uh, section that uh, Pastor Ill just read. But, uh, you know, Layman Slayton, you've talked about uh, the tradition that you come from uh, with broader American evangelicalism uh, and so forth. You know, I, I think that this sort of understanding even still plays plays into the church there. They they will talk a lot about their Christian duty, what they offer to God. And and, and again, they're not going to call it kind of their sacrifice to God and and they have a, a rather different understanding than than the Roman Catholics, the opposite understanding, and very different from us as Lutherans too. They they don't ascribe any real presence of Christ in the sacrament at all. So they're not going to be talking about the sacrament as a sacrifice, but the works that they do, uh, which is ultimately what it boils down to for the Roman Catholics, uh, they're viewing the Lord's Supper as a work that they do. And we've made this point again. This is this is why we have to get the directions right. But I think American evangelicalism very broadly, uh, you know, this kind of, um, you know, conglomeration between the Methodist, Baptist, Pentecostal kind of influence of theology on on the american christian church and and really broadly in the world even at this point you know still has this this kind of wrong understanding that we're offering something to god that appeases him and and it just boils down to look this is what the reformation is about do, do you want to jump in and talk about that i've kind of pointed to your background there uh lamely oh, well pastor Hill has a comment first okay <laughs> i think that this is even a little bit more than just uh common to american evangelicalism I think this is actually true to all sinners who have pulses, because I know it's true to me. 
I know that there are times when I want to show Jesus my sincerity, and I want to show Jesus that I'm serious about my faith, like what I think and what I can do aren't completely screwed up by sin, and like they matter. And then I ask myself how that's working, and it never works out very well at all. (laughs) But my sinful flesh and my sinful self sure does want to try. And I want to show Jesus exactly how serious I am. I feel like Linus in the pumpkin patch waiting for the great pumpkin saying, this is the sincerest pumpkin patch of all. (laughs) It has to be because I'm here. Right. That's actually his logic. (laughs) Well, and that's an excellent point. And and that's certainly where it stems from is is our own sin-ridden hearts. Absolutely. Uh, I guess the point I was making was not negating that, but kind of when it moves into actual intentional theology that is being taught and communicated to people, uh, well, layman's sleep. Well, it's, it's a, I guess we could say it's an example of the, the broad and the narrow. So the broad, in the broad sense, this is all of us. I mean, this is what we tend to do naturally as humans, but in the narrow sense, you can see how this has specifically played itself out first in the Roman Catholic church here 500 years ago. And now as we look around at American evangelicalism today, with so many similarities between that worship and this worship of 500 years ago that the reformers were taking on. So you've got the the broad, look, this is all of us, and you've got this specific, here's how it's actually working itself out in those two traditions. And it is always fascinating to me making these comparisons and seeing how much American evangelicalism has circled back around to the errors of the adversaries 500 years ago, while at the same time trying to say that everything about Roman Catholicism is bad and we should get get rid of all of it. And in attempting to get rid of all of it, they've adopted so much of it. Well said. Uh, any closing thoughts with just a couple minutes here, maybe even pointing to some of those specific things that, that play out that we still see in the church today? Well, I think, like you were saying, worship. Worship is seen in American evangelicalism from my tradition, a sacrifice that I do for God. I come to church to give God something. Uh, that's that's the point of the service on Sunday is for me to come and give something to him. And then hopefully if what I've given is sincere, I will also experience him in return. And and you see the, the direction being flipped where it starts with me, goes to God. And if God's pleased, it comes back to me. So I guess that's one that's I'll leave it at that for now. <laughs> and I think that's true. Um, certainly in, in those American evangelical churches and culture. And I've seen different presenters present about, it's important that we bring God worship. Uh, even if we do that all by ourselves and don't gather with brothers and sisters in Christ, if we don't hear the proclamation of God's word from outside of us, if we don't have the opportunity to, uh, have our baptism held up in front of us and to have the Lord's Supper served to us, it's most important that we bring worship. That's a placing of law that God doesn't give. First and foremost, we receive the goodness of Jesus, and from there we go on to receive uh, to give him our thanks and praise, our prayers and our supplications, just like he's asked us to. Absolutely. As Francis Pieper says, the Lord's Supper is no more and no less not law, but pure gospel. It is not a work that we do for Christ, but a work that Christ does to us. Amen. Thanks for stopping by today. And until next time, keep confessing, church.